device. Uh, you can turn to John chapter 17. We're going to cover the whole chapter. Typically I say, if you don't have those, you can follow along on the screen behind us, but you cannot follow along on the screen behind us today. Um, so let me just quickly kind of recap where we're at, so we get us all on the same page. For the last couple of months, we've kind of been in this section in the Gospel of John that's been basically a monologue by Jesus. He has eaten the Passover meal with his closest of friends, and then he has spent time instructing and encouraging and preparing them for what lies ahead. Ultimately, what lies ahead is his arrest and his crucifixion. And so he knows that this is going to throttle his friends in a very deep way. So he's doing everything that he can to help prepare them for what lies ahead. But now today, we're going to make kind of this uh, really distinct shift. So he's been addressing his disciples very clearly, but now he's going to address his father. And in John chapter 17, we find Jesus praying, which I was thinking about this this week, and I think it's just really interesting that we find Jesus doing this at this time, because maybe you guys have said this yourself, or maybe you've heard other people say this, but oftentimes, not oftentimes, but sometimes, maybe when, when we make a decision that maybe is not the best decision, or it's selfish, or it's, it's sinful in some way, uh, maybe you've heard someone, or you've said, uh, well, God knows my heart, right? Like, well, I know I shouldn't have done that thing, but God, he knows my heart, right? I'm imperfect, but God, he knows the real me deep down. And I think it's really interesting that Jesus here at the end of his, his life, he is praying. Like, why not give his disciples some more instruction, right? Like, isn't that really important? I know he's been doing it. He said a lot of words to his disciples, but why not give them a little bit more? Is it really important that he would pray to his father right now? And, and of all people, like, Jesus' heart is known, right? Like, does he really need to do this? But this is what we find him doing here in these last moments, using this really important time to pray to his father. And I think that's really instructive and insightful as we think about Jesus modeling this. It's not just modeling, there's, there's other reasons for it as well, but clearly we can see him modeling something really important as he's praying. Uh, a couple of points I want to make before we get into the text about just the text that we're looking at, chapter 17 generally, uh, this morning. So throughout the 26 verses in John 17, Jesus is talking repeatedly about his father giving him things. So he talks about his father giving him authority. His father gives him words to speak. And in those words, he's giving him truth that he's conveying to people. God the Father is giving Jesus people that then Jesus is supposed to keep. He's giving eternal life through Jesus. God the Father is giving glory to Jesus. So what we find in these verses is this picture of God as this incessant giver, this idea of giving, or the, the phrase that Jesus uses here is used over 50 times in these 26 verses. That he, God the Father, is giving things to Jesus. So clearly, throughout this time of prayer that Jesus has, there is this clear 
reminder that God is an incessant giver. And and I think then what we see happening with Jesus in the moments that are going to follow, in the day that follows, when he is ultimately going to give up everything, he's going to give up his life, that that's not that surprising of a reality because his father is incessantly giving good gifts to his son and to the followers of his son. Secondly, we see again the link between Jesus and his father. Three verses I'm just going to highlight. Sorry that we can't, these were all up on the the PowerPoint, but I can't highlight them in the same way. But let me read them. In verse 1, Jesus says to his father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And then in verse 10, uh, as Jesus is speaking about the people that his father that his father has given to him he says all mine is yours and all yours is mine and then in verse 21 he says you father are in me and i in you so there's this really clear link that we get again between jesus and his father jesus and his father are distinguishable and yet they are one and this is a massive theme that we see throughout the gospel of john that i think then has not i think it does have implications for us we're going to get into some of those implications later but this fact that he and his father are one one of the implications is that he wants his followers to be one with him and to be one with one another so we're going to see that pretty pervasive throughout these verses so in these 26 verses we find jesus praying for himself He's praying for his disciples, and then he's going to pray for all Christians, even those who are not yet Christians, which would be us today, those of us who are Christians. So that's how we're going to break up the text this morning in those three chunks, the ways in which Jesus uh, is praying or the focus of his prayer. So let me read the first five verses, uh, and this will uh, we'll find Jesus praying uh, for himself. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So here we find Jesus praying for himself, and he's praying specifically that he would be glorified. Does that sound familiar in terms of how you pray for yourself? Do you pray that you would be glorified? Now, probably not nearly as directly as this, right? Father, glorify me. But I think if, if we would dig deep into many of our prayers, I think we would find that, that the focus of our prayers, that the hoped end is very similar to Jesus. We oftentimes want glory ourselves. Now, Jesus... He's seeming, in these five verses, he's seeming to be recalling a previous conversation that he has had with his father. He says, the hour has come. So they had talked about this hour previously in eternity past. And this conversation that Jesus had with his father was at a time when Jesus had 
greater glory. It talks about in verse 5, it's talking how he had a greater glory at a previous time. So what Jesus is inferring here is that he has somehow, some way forfeited glory. He has humbled himself at a previous time in his existence. He held a greater glory, but he has shed that. He has put that off, and he has assumed a position where he has less glory. But now he is saying, Father, glorify me again as I was in the past. And then in verse 4, Jesus says that he's accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So as he's talking about his work here, he's talking about work that he has done, work that he is in the past, but he's also talking about work that is about to happen. Okay, so it's not just looking back, it's also encapsulating the cross, which is about to happen. I think part of what Jesus is saying here is that the cross, what he is about to do, is as good as done. It, has as, it is as good as done. There's no question whether it will happen or not. He is going to the cross, he is going to carry out this act, he is going to complete the work that he has come to do. Now, if we look at some of the work that Jesus has done, we think, well, the dude walked on water, right? He turned water into wine. He raised a man from the dead. And, and many of the things that he has done were miraculous. And, and so w- when people looked at him, what they saw was, or many of them saw, was a king. Now, obviously, he had many opponents as well. But as Jesus came back into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with all of Jerusalem, what did we find? But people went out of Jerusalem, hailing him as the king. So they had looked at the things, the works that he had done, and they wanted to glorify him. They wanted to crown him king. And so we could ask, well, has he not already received glory? Why is he asking for more glory? Previously in John chapter 5, verse 41, Jesus said, I do not receive glory from people. I do not receive glory from people. And why? Why does he not receive glory from people? In chapter 2 he says that he does not entrust himself to them. Them being those who were believing in him because of miraculous signs. He doesn't entrust himself to humanity because he knows all people. Jesus knows that the glory that comes from you and I cannot be trusted. That we, will, we may be quick to give God glory when circumstances work out in our favor, but we all have been in that position where circumstances don't go the way that we want, and we will shake our fist at God. The glory that we would give to God is oftentimes fickle. And so Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. Now, Jesus' request to be glorified has some serious depth to it. He knows that glory, the glory that he's talking about here, is synonymous with pain. It's synonymous with mockery and spite that will be directed at him. It's synonymous with the fact that he is going to be laid low. Even in his request here, to be glorified, he is focused beyond himself because he's speaking of his father's glory. He's speaking of his father's work that he is now carrying out. He is the servant of his father, but it is his his father's work that he is carrying 
out. He speaks of his father's authority. He speaks of the eternal life that his, fa- his father will give to others. And so part of what Jesus is doing here is he's remapping the whole idea of glory. He, he is saying that it's not wrong to seek glory. It's good for us to seek glory, but we must seek glory in the way that he does. Because the reality is we oftentimes do not seek glory or see glory in the way that Jesus does. We have a tendency to see glory being found in our accomplishments, in us being recognized, in skills that we possess, in growth that we can manufacture or seemingly manufacture in our lives. But what Jesus is saying here is that glory is only found in and through him. So glory for us is found in giving up what we treasure most. Glory for us is found in selfless sacrifice in Jesus' name. Glory for us is found in believing the gospel and then letting the implications of believing the gospel roll out through our lives. There is no glory in us but by Jesus. Glory in our lives is always attached to Jesus' name. One little tidbit here before we move to the next section. Uh, Jesus makes a comment here about eternal life in verse 3. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I, I think this is really interesting because when we think of eternal life, I think we have this tendency to think of location, right? We think of heaven when we think of eternal life. But Jesus is pushing against that here. He's saying eternal life is to know him and to know his father. That is where we really come alive. And so in a sense, we can have eternal life beginning now as we know and trust Jesus today as well. Augustine, church father, he said this, He said, you have made us, speaking about God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Jesus. That is where we find life. That is where we find eternal life. That is where we find glory. All right. Let's pick it up in... Verse 6, Jesus prays, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, 
I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Catch all that? It kind of preaches itself. We really don't need to talk about that, do we? No. Just kidding. All right. So, here, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And in part, a big part of what he's praying here is that they would have fullness of joy. And this is a repeated theme that we've, that's popped up in the last number of weeks, that Jesus is really concerned with his followers' joy. He wants them to be filled with it. Not, not just a little bit, but to the full. He wants our lives to be marked by joy. Now, if we read through this section and we note some of these other items that Jesus is praying for and about, I think we can see some of what leads to our joy. So I'm going to look at five verses here and just highlight five things that Jesus says that I think can help us see where our joy is found. Okay, verse 6. And Jesus says, The people whom you gave me out of the world. So I think even in this little phrase, uh, we can get a sense of where joy is found, specifically for the disciples, because that's who Jesus is addressing. But we can even stretch that out to ourselves as well. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that they did not find him. He found them. He came to them. They didn't climb a ladder. They didn't do a bunch of work to find him. He found them. We get this picture of this sovereign God, that he is the one who's moving, that he's the one who's coming. I was thinking about this this week, how often I can tend to not think this way. Even though theologically this is what I believe, how in my daily life I can so easily get into this way of thinking that makes things all about me. So uh, I was... I was a little sick this week, okay? And uh, when I say a little sick, I mean a little sick. It wasn't a bad sickness at all. And I thought, I thought for a couple days, I was, I was like, am I even sick? Like, is this a sickness? Because it doesn't feel like a normal sickness, so is this just me kind of being a pansy, or, or what is this? And, and then I thought, oh, no, I, I am sick, but you know what? I think what's going on here is that I've been eating really healthy and exercising really consistently. I've been doing all of these things, drinking a lot of water. And so I think because I've been doing these things that, that that's why my sickness is less than what it could be. Now, those things can play into it, right? But just notice the train of my thought. I'm thinking, I have done these things to accomplish this. 
And, and I think it's so easy for this to just seep into the way in which we think about our spiritual lives as well. I do these things. I get to God. I work my way to Him. But I think even here in verse 6, we get this example that Jesus wants His followers to know that God has come to them. A selfish focus vastly inhibits our capacity for joy. When we are selfish or or self-focused, it inhibits our ability to experience joy. It is in Jesus where we find our fullness of joy. If the disciples fall into this lie that they are able to save themselves or even do anything at all to save themselves, their joy is lost. Jesus is fighting for their joy. I have come to you. I am the one who saves you. He wants them to see that God is the one who saves sinners. God is the one who saves his enemies so that their joy may be full. Verse 7, Jesus says, Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. And then in verse 8, he also says, You sent me, where the idea that he's giving his son. So Jesus here is coming from God. And in his coming, he is demonstrating how God gives good gifts. The greatest gift he gives is through his son, Jesus Christ. But Jesus came from God. He is the Son of God. And I think it's really vital for the disciples to remember this as Jesus is going to the cross. He's going to die for them to remember that God is giving all of this. God is behind all of this. God is orchestrating all of this. He is working for their good. He is giving good things, even in his Son going to the cross. To his disciples, to Jesus' disciples, for them, it's not going to look like God is giving a good gift. But Jesus is reminding them, no, I am giving good gifts, even in my son going to die on the cross. In this picture, we see Jesus giving and pursuing, reminding his followers of how his father gives and pursues them. Verse 8. They have received the words that you gave me, and they have believed those words. In all the chaos and emotion being felt by the disciples, I love this little picture that we get of their work, of the things that they do. So we get this picture, God is incessantly giving to his followers. And what do the disciples do? What are they called to do? Two things, receive and believe. This is their work in this process. Receive the good gifts that God gives and believe in him. Believe his good news for them. Believe that he is the one who is accomplishing salvation for them. Believe that even in the messiness, even in the hardship, even in the midst of hatred, he still loves them. He's pursuing them. And they are to receive and believe. Verse 11. Jesus prays, Father, keep them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So God is keeping 
the disciples. This is what Jesus praying, that his father would keep the disciples so that, so that they would be united as closely as Jesus is united to his father. This is a massive prayer. Huge prayer that Jesus is praying right here that his followers would be united to one another in the same way that Jesus is united to his Father. Because we love to love self, right? It's not natural for us to love others. We love to love me. I was reminded of this this week. Um, one of my children uh, received, well, it was my, my now three-year-old, received a lightsaber for her birthday. And we, uh, we got a foam. We have the light-up ones, but we got her a foam one because she likes to hit. And so this way she can do damage without really doing damage, right? So she got this lightsaber. And uh, two days after she received this lightsaber, um, we noticed that the end of it had been bitten off. And no one had made us aware of this reality. Uh, but we asked around, and we found that one of our children had bitten this off. It had just happened. And in about probably five minutes after that happened, we found out that this same child who through the night uh, was having an earache, and it turned out to not be anything, but they'd gotten some Tylenol during the night so they could sleep. And we had another uh, uh, vial of Tylenol ready for them in case we needed to do that during the night. And this child found the Tylenol and wanted to sneak it and took half of the Tylenol and thought that that would be a good treat for them. And so, uh, so we had conversations about this uh, and so forth because we've talked about it many other times that this, this is not candy. This is not a treat. This is not good for you to do this kind of thing. And, and it was just this reminder of how we look out for ourselves. And when we look out for ourselves, we are projecting hatred towards others. It's not as though then it's neutral towards those around us. But no, this child was showing hatred towards their mom and dad because we have talked about this specific thing numerous times. They know the expectations for this. And they knew that they were in the wrong, which is why they wanted to tuck tail and run when we wanted to talk about this thing with them. Jesus is saying that his followers' joy is directly tied to their unity with each other. And their tendency is going to be to look out for themselves. And as they look out for themselves, they will project hatred, divisiveness, and conflict towards one another. And that because in our selfishness, right, we oftentimes think that is what is going to make us happy. But Jesus is saying, no, your selfishness will not make you happy. It will actually destroy you. It will actually create division and conflict. Your joy is found in selflessness, not selfishness. Selfishness will steal your joy. Verse 18, 
Jesus prays, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus came to seek and to save sinners. And now as he prepares to leave his disciples, he prays for them. But he's also telling them this as well at other times, that they are sent into the world. It's not as though now they just go hide in a room and they cry together and and that's the end of it. He's sending them into the world. Jesus' disciples, as weak and unbelieving and unimpressive as they are, are the strategy for the gospel to advance. Jesus will continue to seek and to save sinners through them. His mission is now their mission. Jesus' mission and their engagement in it is where their joy will be found. And to drive this home a little further, we oftentimes think we know best how to ascertain our joy. It's easy for us to roll through life and to think that, just base our decisions on common sense or to rely on our intuition or the feelings that we might have in a given moment. But our pursuit, our conception of joy will differ vastly from Jesus. Jesus says, die to self, whereas we say, make much of ourselves. The reality is, is we oftentimes would rather indulge ourselves, and when I say indulge ourselves, I'm saying play with sin. Okay, we would rather at times play with sin, and in that presume upon God's grace, thinking that uh, we can just stop doing this certain act later, or we can ask for forgiveness later. We presume upon God's grace, but But our willingness to do this highlights how misguided we are, how in conflict our mission is with Jesus' mission. Because our mission is all about us. We need to believe in Jesus and let him shape, form his mission in us so that our mission will then become his. Our fullness of joy is found not in our mission, but in Jesus' mission. And I think this is seen also in verse 15. Jesus prays there, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So the world hates Jesus' disciples. The world is the one that's going to persecute and kill Jesus' followers. But notice, Jesus doesn't pray for their comfort for his disciples' comfort. He doesn't even pray for their escape from the physical world, from the physical persecution that's going to happen. The world is under the control of the evil one. And that is exactly where Jesus wants his followers. Jesus' prayer is likely not the prayer that we oftentimes pray for ourselves or our loved ones. We oftentimes will pray for the physical protection and avoid or not pray for spiritual protection. But Jesus is focused clearly and squarely on spiritual protection. And and our tendency to do this maybe just highlights an error in our priorities. We all have a tendency to raise up the physical over 
the spiritual. And what we find throughout the Gospel of John is Jesus continuously taking the physical and pointing to a greater reality. And that reality is spiritual. So part of my encouragement for us this morning is that throughout this next week, that you would sit with Jesus' prayer here. That you would read through this prayer numerous times, even every day, that you would read through this, and you would see how he is praying in this prayer. And you would let Jesus' prayer here shape how you pray, shape how you think about prayer. Let that infiltrate the way you think and pray. Our joy flows from a focus on Jesus, his authority, his salvation, his mission, his provision, his work. The call for us is to receive and to believe. So live this way. Pray this way as Jesus is praying throughout this week. Uh, I want to address one question here that maybe some of you had or have had uh, at some point. In verse 12, the question is, did Jesus fail his task? Did Jesus fail his task? Because in verse 12 it says, Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So the answer to the question, did Jesus fail his task, is a resounding no. It says in verse 4 that Jesus fully accomplished the work that his father gave him to do. And the betrayal that Jesus or that Judas was going to enact was foretold hundreds of years prior. One place you can read about it is in Psalm 41.9. What we find in Judas is an aberration. He is not typical of the way in which God's salvation carries out. Notice he is, he is the one. He is the one. He is not typical. And so we don't look at Judas and say that is an example of how God's salvation carries out. All right, John 17, uh, verse 20, last section here. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So here we find Jesus praying for all Christians. So if you are a Christian, Jesus is praying for you. If you will become a Christian, Jesus is praying for you here. And Jesus continues to pray for us also. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding, praying for us. Jesus is praying that his followers would be 
united, would know his love and would extend that love, would engage with him on the mission that he began. Verse 20, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So, Jesus comes to humanity. He calls people to himself. They believe. These are his disciples. They hear his word and they believe Jesus' word. As they believe Jesus' word, then Jesus' word cannot help but go forth. Jesus' word never just stays in that person and then never goes anywhere. When Jesus' word is believed, it goes somewhere. It moves towards others. And notice Jesus' emphasis here on where it goes. Uh, He's really emphasizing the world in these verses. Verse 21, so that the world may believe. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me. So Jesus' word here, he's emphasizing that his word is being brought by the hated to the haters. Jesus' word is being brought by the hated to the haters. And this is why Jesus continues to pray for us. We need courage to be able to bring his word to the world. We need love because we'll be faced with many opportunities to return hatred with hatred. And Jesus calls us to return hatred with love. We need courage, we need love, we need grace. So Jesus' word goes out through his followers and then more people believe in him. And then Jesus' prayer is that they also, those who would believe, may also be one with each other and one with God. That they would be unified as well. So as the church grows, the church's numbers are added to that those people would be embraced, that they would become one with Jesus' church. He says, this is where glory is seen in the church, through unity amidst people who have a million differences. One author talks about how we're all natural enemies. We are natural enemies, and this is what is so glorious, what, what is so beautiful, what is amazing when Christians who have all these differences, that they will set them aside and they will become unified. Jesus prays that you and I, despite our differences, despite our annoyances with one another, would be so committed to his glory, not to our own glory, but to his glory, that we would set aside our personal agendas. We would set aside our personal hang-ups. We would set aside our preferences, and we would love one another so that we would be as one. It's a great idea to talk about, right? But to actually live this out is absolutely offensive. It's maddening, and it's beautiful. This is an impossible task. It's an impossible task, loving one another selflessly and sacrificially, but it's not impossible with Jesus. And we know that because Jesus is also saying that for those who encounter his Father's glory, who see glory, a glory that's incomparable, 
that you've never seen before as people believe the gospel, that it is impossible for them not to pursue unity in the same way that Jesus did. The basis for this is in verse 23, where Jesus states that God's love for his church is the same as his love for the Son. God's love for you is the same love that he has for his son. I think about myself. Oftentimes, as humanity, the way we make ourselves look better is to dig up dirt on somebody else, right? To make them look bad. I I don't have any dirt on Jesus, and neither do you. There's nothing that we can do to make ourselves look better to God. And yet, this is what he says. He loves his church with the same love that he loves his son. It's amazing. As we see how Jesus pursued glory by making himself nothing and in so doing, reconciling people to himself, including you and I, Christians cannot help but be marked by this extravagant show of love. We work at unity because it's what Jesus sought, because it's what Jesus did, did to us. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be fun or convenient. But love compelled Jesus. And that same love will compel us. So that you and I and the world will know Jesus. We will see his glory and we will know his fullness of joy. D.A. Carson, uh, theologian and pastor, wrote this. He said, Unity is meant to be observable. It is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator. So that we don't boil down what we adhere to and then say that's unity. We raise the bar. Unity is meant and seen, or it's felt and seen, it's observable by common adherence to the gospel, by love that is joyfully self-sacrificing, by undaunted commitment to the shared goals of the mission with which Jesus' followers have been charged, by self-conscious dependence on God himself for life and fruitfulness. Unity is not easy. It is hard, but it is meant to be observable. And when unity is observable, when it's true, it is powerful and it is beautiful. And that is what Jesus' church is intended to be. A few points of gospel application. First of all, Jesus lavishly good or gives. Jesus lavishly gives. All good gifts come through him. Do you believe that? Do you live that way? Are you able to see and acknowledge that all these good gifts that you get throughout a day, even trial and hardship, that he's working good in you. He wants what is best for you. He lavishly gives. And so the call for us then is to receive and believe. Receive the good gifts that he has given and believe in 
Jesus. Secondly, pursue glory and find joy. Pursue glory and find joy. Philippians 2, I'm just going to read a paraphrase of Philippians 2. So if you identify with Jesus in any way, be filled with his love. Do nothing from rivalry. Do nothing from conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Look to the interests of others. As Jesus made himself nothing, do likewise. Become obedient to Jesus, even to the point of death. This is where glory is found. This is where your joy will be full. Make yourself nothing. As we make ourselves nothing, in that we are actually pursuing glory. Not as the world would define it, but when we make ourselves nothing, we are pursuing glory as Jesus would define it. Pursue glory. Let your lives be marked by it. Find joy. I was reminded of this last night when I was talking with one of my kids. So I jack stuff up all the time. I'm, I'm not a great father. I make lots of mistakes. I was having a conversation with one of my children, and they were telling me, it, it was in the course of a, a discipline scenario, okay? And so we were talking through what they had done, how they had hurt others, how what they were doing was actually hatred towards others. And this child said, I am a terrible child. You're not like that, Daddy. And it was a great opportunity for me to convey the gospel. This child looked at me and said, you don't do these things, Daddy. Well, my heart is wired in such a way where I think a lot of those things. I would like to act out in certain ways. And the only reason I don't is but for the grace of God. I think the same things that my children think. I am apt to act out in the same way that my children act out. I do, plenty of times. And so it was a great chance for me to tell this child, hey, you made, the, you made a bad choice. and You hurt some people. Daddy makes bad choices. I hurt people as well. But Jesus will forgive us. See, what, when she looked at me, somehow, way, she saw glory. There was something as she looked at me that she said, you're different than I am, Daddy. And so it was a great chance for me to invite her into, or my daughter Summer, to invite her into trusting Jesus and say, you can have this as well. You can have this as well. Make yourself nothing. Fight for unity within the church and bolt with the gospel into the world. And then lastly, pray. I know that there's this saying that maybe many of you have heard, maybe many of you have said, and may, maybe many of you have grown to hate. I'll pray for you because it can get thrown out in such a trite way. I'll pray for you. And we wonder, do we really ever get prayed for? But we see Jesus modeling here at the end of his life. When he could be giving important instructions, he is praying to his Father. And in his prayer, he is seeking to be united to his Father, to be unified to him. Let Jesus' prayer shape 
how you pray. Pray for unity within your relationships, within your church, within your work, within your home. Pray for unity. Pray that you would know Jesus. Not that you would get stuff from him, but that you would know him. Pray for courage, that you would be able to seek glory in the way that Jesus seeks glory. He's seeking glory by making himself nothing, knowing that he's going to seek glory by enduring pain, persecution, and death. Pray for courage, that you would be able to seek glory in that way, in the way that Jesus seeks glory. Pray for your faith. Pray for people to believe the gospel, non-Christians in your life, that they would believe the gospel. Pray for spiritual protection, first and foremost. I'm not saying don't pray for physical protection, but primarily pray for spiritual protection. Pray that you would know Jesus. Pray that you would be unified with his church. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for these words, for these reminders, for what you have done here at, as you conclude speaking with your disciples and now conclude speaking to your Father uh, in a really substantial way. Thank you for the ways in which we learn about you. Thank you for the things that we learn that are so important. Thank you for modeling things and teaching things. Thank you for going on mission for pursuing those in the world who hate you, who are your enemies. Thank you for giving the privilege to those of us who trust in you to be able to join you in your mission. And now we are able to go and to rescue, to speak words of eternal life, to give hope, to convey joy that you give to us. Jesus, may our lives be marked by your glory, by your joy. In your great name I pray. Amen. You guys.